The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are continuing to work our way through the Gospel of John. We're currently looking at the final stages of the trial of Yeshua. It's the last day of His earthly life. He has been arrested while in the garden with His disciples. After arresting Yeshua, they take Him to Jerusalem to be tried by the Jewish leaders. And as we've been saying, Yeshua actually had two trials, each of which had three parts to it. Our Lord had an ecclesiastical or a religious trial, and He had a civil trial. He was judged before the authorities of Israel, and then He was judged before the Roman authorities. So Yeshua first appeared before Annas, who was the real power behind the high priest. He was the political boss of Jerusalem. He wasn't a high priest at the time. He hadn't been a high priest for years, but he ran the high priest. Okay, The Jews looked to him as the man. Rome at this time was installing the high priest, and they were changing it every year you know, to keep from having too much power, but honest, he had the power. And next he goes to Caiaphas, who was actually the high priest at the time. Uh, he appears in, a, it was a, an illegal trial, it was done at night, and so to make it legal, when dawn came, they had a trial with the Sanhedrin. Everything had already been settled and made up, they just kind of got together early in the morning, said, yep, you all agree, yep, alright, let's go. And uh, then they headed to take him off, you know, to, uh, to the... Roman officials. Uh, Matthew says this in 27, 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Yeshua to put him to death. So this council's meeting as soon as daylight. And they bound him and led him, led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. So they decide, okay, yeah, he's guilty. Let's take him to Pilate. All right. Now, why did the Jewish leaders hate Yeshua so much that they wanted Him dead. I mean, these leaders are just vehement, you know, and they're risking their own freedom, basically, in their pursuit to put Christ to death. Why? Well, Mark tells us in uh, Mark 15, verse 10, he says, For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Him up. They were the high ones. They were the leaders in Israel. Along comes Yeshua, and all the crowds are following Him. They're listening to Him, and they're like, hey, they're jealous. This is wrong. So, you know, you know that envy is a powerful emotion. It's the desire to have what somebody else has. It's similar to coveting, but envy carries with it the sense of you're resentful towards what they do have. And this is the desire the religious officials felt towards Yeshua. They hated Him, and they wanted Him dead. Now, when the religious trial was over, the Jews took Yeshua to Pilate because they wanted Him crucified. And they didn't have the power to do that. So they take Him to Pilate for His civil trial. Pilate says of Yeshua, I find no guilt in Him. So they bring Him to Him. You try Him. Okay, He tries Him. He says, He's not guilty. The next part of the trial was before the Jewish monarch Herod because he's, you know, Pilate's like, well, I don't see anything wrong, but hey, you're from Galilee? Hey, Herod, let me send you over to Herod. So he goes to Herod. Herod says, hey, I've heard all about you. Can you show me a trick? 
you know, Yeshua doesn't want any part of it, so Herod gets mad and, you know, he abuses him for a while and sends him back to Pilate for the last part of the trial, the third part of the civil trial. And then, you know, Pilate says, I just can't find anything wrong with him, so he puts him before the people and he says, uh, I'm going to release him. You know, it's, I have a custom to release someone, and they said, no, no, we want Barabbas. And we ended there last week with this. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Cynical, smiling. What, what is truth? Well, truth is standing right in front of him. He says, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Pilate tries to release Yeshua to the crowds, but they just call out for release. They want Barabbas released. Now Barabbas is a murderer, okay? He's been seditious against Rome, and he's been killing people in a battle against Rome. But they're saying, well, Yeshua has spoken against Rome. He says he's the king, so how about we kill him, but let the guy who's really you know, attacking Rome, let him go. It's just all twisted. Now, as we said last week, Barabbas represents the elect of God. Here's a man who's definitely guilty. He's guilty of murder, but he walks because Yeshua takes his place. And Yeshua's put to death on Barabbas' cross. Now, from Barabbas, our text goes into... 19.1, and it says, Then Pilate took Yeshua, and he flogged him. Now, we all know that Yeshua was flogged before he was crucified. But this may not be what Lazarus is referring to here. See, if we look at Mark's account, he goes from Barabbas to the flogging, to the soldiers mocking him, to being crucified. All right, we see that in Mark 15.15. 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Yeshua, he delivered him to be crucified. Okay? So, he scourges him, he hands him over to be crucified. But in our text in John, Yeshua isn't delivered over to be crucified until verse 16, in his final trial with Pilate. Well, something we need to understand, and I think we really kind of mess up on this and it trips us up. The Bible is an ancient Eastern book. And it really doesn't focus on chronology. Okay, the story is the main point, not the chronology. You know, modern Western historical accounts, everything's got to be historical. They didn't feel that way. I mean, chrono chronological. They didn't feel that way. So this text doesn't have to be taken chronologically, but in the first part of the trial before Pilate, Pilate says this, he says, I find no guilt in him, right? Then in the third part of the trial, in 19.4, Pilate again says, I find no guilt in him. But yet, 19.1 says, Pilate took Yeshua and flogged him. Why is he flogging an innocent man? What's that about? Well, the Romans had a law, had a saying about their law that said this, let justice be done though the heavens fall. So to the Romans, justice was very important. I mean, they held that very high. They wanted to make sure things were the way they should be, but nothing to them was to come before justice. So why is Pilate having a man who he declares innocent 
flawed. Well, what I see happening here is that Pilate is having Yeshua flogged because he hopes, I'm going to take this man and I'm going to beat him, and I hope that satisfies the Jewish lust. I hope they see this man beat and they're like, okay, that's good enough. Let's let him go. See, he doesn't want to upset the crowd because that would be a problem for himself. But neither does he want to condemn an innocent man. So he's kind of, you know, between a rock and a hard place here. So he flogs Yeshua, hoping it's going to be enough. And the Jews say, okay, that's good. You can let him go now. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world did you come up with that? Well, first of all, Pilate has him flogged, and he's flogging an innocent man. We know that, okay? That, that, that something's wrong there. Why would you flog an innocent man? Secondly, the word that Lazarus uses for flogged here, mastigao, which is a general term that means to be whipped. But in Matthew 27, 26, and in Mark 15, 15, the original Greek verb is more specific. It's flagalao, which means to be whipped with the Roman flagellum. So it's a much more severe form used in the other Gospels. All right? That word flog there. Now, the Romans had three forms of bodily punishment or flagging. They associated these different beatings. You know, sometimes they'd use, they, you, they call it beating with the fist or with canes or with whips. The first level of beating was with fists, and the second it was a flogging, and the third was scourging, and all in ascending graduation, you know, depending on how severe they wanted to be. The most fearsome whip was the third one. It was the flagrum that was used in gladiatorial combats. The Romans would use this as well as an instrument of punishment. It was a whip that would, uh, it was a wooden handle with leather straps on it. And in the leather straps, they had these little metal pieces, look like little barbells or something, you know, or pieces of bone. And so when they whipped, these things would go into the skin and literally pull the skin off. So it wasn't just, you know, you think of, you know, beating with a belt or something. They would, they would strip them, you know, to the waist, tie them to a pole, and then beat them with this. All right. It was a form of corrective punishment. You know, this was a very severe punishment. This last form um, was obviously the severest form, and that usually what they did before they sent them to crucifixion. Now, in Jews, the Jewish law said that you could only whip a man how many times? I think that's right, 40. The Jews did 39. In case somebody counted wrong. Okay? They wanted to make sure they didn't go over. All right? The Jewish law allowed 40. Uh, how many did the Roman law limit? There was no limits on a Roman scourging. The soldiers would beat the prisoner until the soldier was exhausted or the commanding officer pulled him off. And it was usually not just one soldier. It would be several whipping at the same time. And they would just do it till they couldn't, you know, they were exhausted. They say the beatings were so savage that many people died in scourging and never made it to the cross. It was absolutely a horrid form of torture. Eusebius, who was bishop of Caesarea, wrote about scourging in his letter to the church at Smyrna. He wrote that it was a punishment that was inflicted on those to be executed, which produced terrible results. He says, veins were laid bare, 
the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. This is how the Messiah is described in Isaiah 52.14. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children. And that's what they're referring to. They're referring to the whipping that he took. He was so badly beaten. This is one of the reasons I, I don't watch religious movies or religious shows. First of all, because they just get me angry because they're never accurate. Okay? But, you know, also they never... Now, I hear that Mel Gibson's movie was a Passion of the Christ, that they did a pretty good job in displaying the whipping in that. I, I didn't see it. Again, I just... Those things are so far off, and that stuff seems to stick in your mind more than the Bible does. So I try to avoid that kind of stuff. But, you know... He was marred beyond human recognition. That's how bad it was. That's the kind of torture he, he endured before he reached the cross. The prophet Isaiah wrote in his prophecies of the suffering servant of Yahweh, he says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So I think that Pilate ordered his soldiers to have Yeshua scourged, not in this extreme form, but a lighter form, in the apparent hope that the punishment would satisfy the chief priests and the Pharisees. And I think Luke helps us understand this when Luke says in 23, 15, and 16, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So, so Herod's saying, hey, this guy is not worthy of death. He sent him back. And watch, he says, I will therefore punish and release him. So Luke gives us some insight there. This, this whipping, this scourging was not before crucifixion. This is a scourging to hopefully prevent crucifixion. You know? That's what he's trying to do here. And I think the flogging that's threatened here in Luke is the one that's reported in our text in John. Again, this is mastigao. It's the least form, the least severe form of a flogging. Now, if the chronology of Luke and John is correct, this means that Yeshua received a second scourging, a much more violent one, after the sentence of crucifixion was passed. And that's what Isaiah is talking about, that severe form of crucifixion. Verse 2 says, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. How many soldiers do you think were involved in this? Well, we don't have to guess because Mark tells us. He says they called together the whole battalion. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. In other words, this is almost, you know, usually he would just take a battalion with him when he went in for the feast days. Pilate would take a battalion. So basically, all the soldiers that are there, they're going waking up their buddies. They're getting everybody together. Come on, we're going to have some fun here. That's about 600 soldiers. And it sounds like they all got in on this. They're coming to mock Yeshua. It says they put a crown of thorns on his head. Now, most historians think these thorns probably came from the local date palm tree. The crown of thorns resembled the circlet worn by the Roman emperor Tiberius and made famous by the coins of that day. The coins had a picture of the emperor with this crown. And you see, it looks like a crown. you got these points sticking up, you know, there. Well, 
it supposedly gave something of a divine radiance to the emperor, you know, when you put it on that way. However, palm fronds, when turned inward instead of outward on these wreaths, proved to be painful spikes. So this crown was intended not only to mock, but to cause pain. Now, the Roman soldiers made a crown as a sign of kingship. In other words, they're mocking the man who the Jewish crowd just several days earlier had claimed to be king of the Jews. We saw that in John 12, 13. They're hailing him as king of the Jews, so they're mocking him. Here's your king. You know, this crown of thorns may be a visible expression of the fact that Yeshua is bearing the curse brought about in the Garden of Eden. You know, remember as a result of the curse, thorns and thistles, well, Hosea writes this, The high priest of Aven, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow upon their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So Hosea writes, When judgment is visited upon the covenant people for breaking Yahweh's covenant, thorns and thistles are going to grow on their altars. So I think, you know, John is trying to give us a picture here of Yeshua the suffering servant taking upon Him the curses of covenant breakers and satisfying that thing. So, you know, it's just amazing that through this text, we've got all kinds of stuff woven through here if we're willing to take the time, I think, to dig it out. Verse 3 says, They came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck Him with their hands. The Roman soldiers cry out, Aviv! Which was, you know, hail! This is what they would say to Caesar. They would hail Caesar, and they slap Yeshua in the face. Now, despite this tragic parody of the Romans, the truth is that Yeshua is the King of kings and Lord of lords. They're doing it as a mocking sense, but He truly is the King. And that Yeshua submits to such abuse teaches us that power does not function in the kingdom of God as it does in the world. I don't know that we ever get that. But it's not, you know, too often we want to function in a worldly manner. Yeshua taught His disciples this. He said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And here He stands humbling Himself before creatures that He made as they beat Him and taught Him. You know, He could have spoken a word and 12 billion angels could have showed up and wiped them out. But He humbly stands there silently taking all they dish out. And he's demonstrating us. This is the kingdom of God. It doesn't, it's not a powerful, it's not a worldly thing that fights its enemies. John 19, 4 says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. You know, again, Pilate incorrectly hoped that if he scourged Yeshua, that would satisfy the Jews. He didn't flog Yeshua in order to crucify him. He flogged him in order to get him to escape crucifixion. I find no guilt in him. This is the second of three times that he says this. What's interesting here is that if you compare the four Gospels, you find that Yeshua is declared innocent a total of seven times. Now, you know the number seven is a significant number. It's a number of completion, perfection, totality. We see that Judas says, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. Secondly, we see Pilate declared, I find no fault in him. Herod said, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. Pilate's wife says, have nothing to do with this just man. The dying thief affirmed, this man had done nothing amiss. 
The Roman centurion who glorified God said, certainly this was a righteous man. And those who stood with the centurion acknowledged truly this was the Son of God. So seven times in the Gospels they're saying, no, he's innocent. So Yeshua came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe and Pilate said to them, behold the man. Now, many scholars identify this statement as a classical Latin expression of pity. To the people who chose the man who will receive God's you know, amnesty, they're saying, you know, okay, we want this man to be released. We want Barabbas to be released. So he comes out and he says, here, behold this man. All right, he presents Yeshua as a beaten, harmless, rather pathetic figure to make them say, yeah, I guess you go ahead and you can release him. He's had enough. Let him go. Pilate's utterance, behold the man, is dripping with irony. Does, he's basically saying, does this bloody man really look like a king to you? You think you have something to worry about from this man? Not at all. Now, if Pilate is mocking Yeshua, he's also mocking the Jewish authorities as well. But instead of moving them to compassion, the Jews just yell out for the crucifixion. Now, here's what's interesting here. For Lazarus, Pilate's words here may constitute an unconscious allusion to Zechariah 6. And say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. See, for John, Pilate was unknowingly and ironically presenting Yeshua to the nation as the Messianic king. Behold the man! Oh, hey, didn't Zechariah say that exact thing? Yes, he did. Pilate's reluctance to have Yeshua crucified is really surprising when you, contempor- when you consider everything his contemporaries said about him. According to historical record, Pontius Pilate's contempt for the Jewish community engendered protests, unrest, and resentment. The Jewish historian and theologian Philo of Alexandria describes Pilate as a man of inflexible disposition, very merciless, as well as obstinate. Here's this, this ruler that everybody, like I told you before, everybody except the Bible spoke really bad about Pilate. But here's this man doing all he can to try to release Yeshua because he knows that he's innocent. The Jewish historian Josephus also reported that the excessive force which Pilate used to quell his riots often resulted in great loss of life. He wasn't afraid to kill people. He wasn't afraid at all. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 13.1 reports Josephus' claim mentioning certain Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. He went out and he slaughtered all these Galileans, mixed their blood with the sacrifices. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. This is the third time Pilate has pronounced that he can find no cause of death sentence to be imposed upon this man. Now, both Lazarus and Luke are careful to record that Pilate has confirmed Yeshua's innocence three times during these different trials. They're saying, you know, Pilate clearly saying, this man is innocent. Take him yourself and crucify him. Now, this is not a formal transfer of his prerogatives to the Jewish court. 
And we know that because the Jews didn't make any attempt to take him and go out and crucify him. All right? I think this is probably frustration and sarcasm. You bring him to me to be judged. I say he's innocent and you want him killed. Do it yourself. Basically what he's saying. You do it. You don't want me involved? Go do it yourself. Well, they know they can't. All right? The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. For the first time, they actually lay out the real charge against Yeshua. This is what they decided a long time ago, but see, they couldn't bring this to Pilate because Pilate didn't care about blasphemy. They tell Pilate that Yeshua has blasphemed by claiming to be the Son of God, and that according to Jewish law, Yeshua should be put to death. Now, they're probably talking about Leviticus 24.16. Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. That's how you do it. You do it with stones. All the congregation. Everybody's involved. Why? So all may hear and fear. That, that phrase is reported through it. Whenever they judge someone, you're involved. Okay, You're throwing stones, so everybody fears. The sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, Hashem, he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. All right, so Leviticus says that the blasphemer should be stoned. The Mishnah said that he should be stoned and then hung. I'm not sure, double dead or, you know, dead is dead, right? <clears throat> All right, so I don't know why they, you know, we're going to stone him, then we're going to hang him. Unless they're just saying, you know, he that hangs on a tree is cursed, and so they're trying to get involved in that curse there. Now, if we compare all four gospel accounts, we see that the Jews charge seven indictments against Christ. Another seven. I know, let's play with sevens a little bit, okay? Uh, number one, threatening to destroy the temple. They accuse him of that, which he didn't. They weren't paying attention to what he said. He's talking about his body. Secondly, being an evildoer. Well, we know that's not true, all right? Perverting the nation. He wasn't doing that either. Forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. He never did that. He said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Stirring up all the people. Uh, no, he wasn't. Not against Rome, he wasn't stirring them up. Being a king, well, yeah, that was a correct accusation. He was a king. And seventhly, making himself the Son of God. Yeah, he did that too. All right? This sevenfold indictment witnessed to the completeness of their rejection of Yeshua. Again, seven indictments. They want him put to death. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. What statement? What, what made Pilate fear here? This merciless Roman leader. Well, he says he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard that, that Christ was saying he's the Son of God, he was afraid. He was afraid. Now, why is Pilate afraid? Why did that bother Pilate? So what, what did he care what they call him? To a Roman, the title Son of God would indicate a divine man with supernatural powers. All right, we think of Son of God, we know, you know, the Bible calls the, the watchers sons of God. All right, well, that's just not a biblical thing. You know, the Romans took that, the Greeks took that, and all their mythology, I think, is built on that. Pilate had heard, without a doubt, of the miracles of Christ. A lot of people talking about that. All right, that he'd been doing for three years. 
Then his wife comes to him and said, man, I'm suffering dreams about this guy. And so he's th- and now he hears, he says he's the son of God? Uh, maybe this is someone I shouldn't even be messing with. Now, the citizens of the Roman Empire, and within certain limits, even its rulers were extremely tolerant of foreign gods. The oldest and most accepted group of foreign deities were the gods of ancient Greece. All right, Basically, they had the same gods. These gods had made their home in the Roman world at an early time, along with Greek art and literature. All right, Now, some of these Greek gods shared Roman names they'd acquire from Roman characteristics, but others were simply just left as they were, and the Romans just accepted the Greek gods. Now, the world of the early Roman Empire was also inhabited by another group of individuals who served as intermediaries between the gods above and people below. And these were the demigods, or heroes, individuals of mixed parentage. They had a god and a human as parents. And they were usually credited for uh, possessing great understanding and great power. In general, their demigod status is expressed in the fact that they live as mortals, but when they die, they retain their fully vigorous human appearance as well as their former powers. And because of their unique status and qualities in the popular imagination, these demigods were frequently regarded as protectors. They're here and they're protectors. And in the world of the first century, I know you're familiar with Hercules, right? Asclepius, those two gods were the most widely worshipped of these protector or savior gods. See, Hercules is a Nephilim. He's half man, half God. So Pilate knows that, well, okay, this guy's a miracle worker. He says he's the son of God. So maybe he's thinking of one of these gods or the children of the gods have come down to earth to confront him. And so he's like, wait a minute, people. He's God? Now, to show you that, that this is what they believe, let me just show you a few scriptures here. Um, in Iconium, Paul heals a man, and the crowd's response is, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Lyconia, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. See, they believed that the gods had come down in the past. They believed that happened. There are many stories in the Roman mythology, in Greek mythology, about gods coming down. We also see this in Acts 28. Remember, Paul had the shipwreck, and so he's gathering sticks to build a fire, and he goes to put it on the fire, and a viper comes out and bites, latches onto his hand. However, he shook it off, the creature, into the fire, and he suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up suddenly and fall down dead. So they're all sitting around just watching. Okay, how long is it going to take him? You know, and they waited for a while, nothing happened. No misfortune came to him, and they changed their minds. Because they said, this guy must have done something bad because you know, he escaped shipwreck, but he's going to die now. And now they say, he's a god. So they believe that the gods could come down as men. And to add to that, what Pilate's wife said to him in Matthew 27, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Now, if Pilate's any kind of a guy, he knows to listen to his wife, Right? <laughs> he says, she says, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. All right, so don't, don't have anything to do with that. So he, he's got all these factors coming in. He does miracles. My wife's having dreams about him. He says he's the son of God. Yikes. I'm gonna, I got to get out of this. 
He knows he's innocent. He wants to release him, but he's running scared. Alright? As a side note here, many historical records indicate that Pilate's wife Claudia became a Christian following the crucifixion. A non-canonical apocryphal gospel, the Gospel of Nicodemus, describes Claudia as a convert to Judaism. Greek Orthodox Christians as well as Coptic Christians place Claudia and Pilate in their catalog of the saints. So they're both they're saying, hey, this, these people came to faith. Now the bishop Eusebius, quoting the second century priest, apologist, and Roman lawyer Tertullian in his fourth century church history, wrote that both Pilate and his wife became converts to Christianity. Eusebius recorded that Pilate made a full report of Yeshua's resurrection to the emperor Tiberius, who referred the matter to the Roman Senate with a recommendation that Yeshua of Nazareth be declared a god. So, this is interesting stuff. You know, this is history. Eusebius goes back and he says, well, you know, uh, I mean, Pilate goes back and he says, tells the emperor Tiberius, say, this guy, he came back from the dead. We killed him, but he came back from the dead. So they, they go to the Roman Senate. And they say, let's declare him a god. You know, I don't know how that works, people, but you don't need to be doing declaring anybody anything. Okay, If he's a god, he's a god. Whether you believe it or not, that doesn't matter. You know, it's like the Catholic Church. We declare you're a saint. God declares who's a saint, and that's the only one who declares. Well, the, the Roman Senate kind of rejected that proposal. But Eusebius also reports that the Roman Emperor Caliglia forced Pilate to commit suicide because he had claimed Christianity. He had come to faith in Christianity, so he says, we gotta, we got to kill this guy. So that's all history, and that's kind of interesting. And you know, you, I, I believe that stuff because you, know, you see all this Emperor Pilate is going through here. You know, I mean, this, this, this Roman authority here, all that's happening and all that's going through his mind you know, and then hearing about the resurrection afterwards, yeah, I'm sure it rattled his cage just a little bit. He's already rattled. Verse 9 says, He entered his headquarters again and said to Yeshua, Where are you from? But Yeshua gave him no answer. Well, Pilate's not asking, you know, historically, where do you come from? He knew he was from Galilee. That's why he sent him to Herod. All right? Luke 23 tells us he's, he, that's the issue here. He's not asking us, you know, where are you from geographically? He's saying, did you come down from the gods? Are you a hero? Are you a demigod? Now, some biblical scholars indicate that the Greek text suggests that Pilate is asking, what's the secret of your origin? Who are you really? And I think that's exactly what's going on here. He's like, well, where are you from? Okay, if you permit me, I'll give you another seven here. The question of Yeshua's origin has already been asked six times in John's Gospel. So this is the seventh time there's a question about origin. At the wedding party in Cana, when he turns the water to the wine, they're like, hey, who is this guy? The Samaritan woman at the well questions, hey, this guy knows everything about me. Who is this guy? The apostles and the multitude in 6 John 6, 5. Three different times by the Jewish leaders in 7, 24, 8, 14, uh, 9.29, and then now, the seventh time in John's Gospel, Pilate asks Yeshua about his origin. So Pilate is faced with the mystery of Yeshua's origin, which is really the theme of the entire Gospel of John. 
Throughout his ministry, he has answered this question over and over. He says, I have come down from the Father, he said. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Pilate is somewhat concerned, but Yeshua didn't answer him. He doesn't even respond. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? you got to laugh when you read that. Okay, First of all, Pilate's being controlled, manipulated by these Jewish authorities. He really doesn't have you know, the freedom, if he wanted to, to let him go, because these Jews are all over him. All right, What Pilate's doing here is he's issuing a threat to Yeshua, and Yeshua informs Pilate, that's an empty threat. Okay, because Yeshua said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Yeshua claims that all authority comes from above. From God is the reference there. And guess what? We've learned all through this gospel, Yeshua is Yahweh. He and the Father are one. So Yeshua is saying, all your power comes from me. You don't have, the only reason you have authority to do anything is because I've given you that authority. He's saying, Pilate, you may be the perfect of Judea simply because God in heaven has determined that you be that. That's it. And people, this is what we have to understand. We could say that same exact thing about President Trump. Why is he there? He's there because God put him there. All right? Now, am I saying, well, he's a perfect man? No, because I think Obama was put there by God. I think Clinton was put there by God. Okay? Now, let me give you a little scripture to back that up. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God is in control. I'll tell you the truth. I believe that Trump has been given to us as a grace gift from God. All right, he has done so many things to you know move this country back in a proper direction. Uh, again, is he a perfect man? No, but I think God's using him to give us grace. And I think if we don't respond to that, and if we don't, you know, again, I really believe that the church is responsible for the direction of America. And because the church is so messed up today, so into health wealth, that it's just, it's destroying. The country's got no conscience because the church is not out leading. Well, Pilate can't do anything to Yeshua other than what's been predetermined by God. All right? So, that's the issue here. He says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, a lot of arguments about who he's talking about here. All right? Some see this as referring to Judas Iscariot. And just because the word delivered there is used many times to Judas, they say that. See, this is definitely Judas. But Judas really didn't hand him over to Pilate. He handed him over to Jewish authority. All right? And in speaking of his betrayal, Yeshua used the present tense here, which most scholars suggest indicates that Yeshua was not speaking specifically about Judas, but about the Jewish authorities who were presently in the act of bringing about his death. All right, so he, he's talking about the Jewish authorities. These are the, pe- the covenant people of God who should know the Scriptures. They're the ones who are guilty because they're handing me over. Now, the singular here, he who, I think is probably a reference to Caiaphas, the high priest, because he's the leader. 
of the chief representative of Jewish authorities. He's the one that should know the Scripture and should be representing God. He's doing anything but. So the Lord said, He who delivered you over, He's the one. And it, I think He's referring to the high priest and the Jewish leaders. Verse 12, From then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, the Greek word expressing Pilate's desire to release Yeshua can be translated was anxious, was eager, was striving. In Acts 3.13, Peter comments on Pilate's intention when he says to the Jewish crowds, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Yeshua, whom you delivered over, talking to the Jewish leaders, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. That's Pilate's whole goal. I want to get rid of this guy. I want to let him go. This is an imperfect tense, which means repeated action in the past. He kept trying to release him. He wanted Yeshua set free. He knew he was an innocent man. They say here, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Now, that being called Caesar's friend is a technical term, and the scholars argue about whether it was really used at this time or not, or if it came into later usage. But the Jewish leaders here are taking a very hard-line stance with Pilate. You've got to remember, they're subject people. Okay, They're in bondage to Rome, but they would rather risk the wrath of Rome than let Yeshua remain alive. I mean, they're, they're threatening this Roman ruler who has the power to just wipe them out. But they don't care because they're just, they want one thing. They want Yeshua killed. And this is not an empty threat, and Pilate knew it. See, he couldn't afford to have it reported back to the emperor that he had acquitted a man accused of being king of the Jews, an act of treason against their empire. He couldn't do that. If Pilate now failed to convict Yeshua, the Jewish authorities, they could... Uh, complained to Rome that, hey, Pilate released a traitor. The Jews had run to Rome many times about Pilate. Okay? So he's kind of on thin ice here. He'd been, uh, Pilate had been close to Aurelius Sejanus, who was the commander of Caesar's Praetorian Guard and one of the most powerful men in Rome. These two were friends. Well, about a year earlier, Sejanus had been executed for plotting against Caesar and many of his other friends had been executed as well. So against this backdrop, Pilate realized that as much as he wanted to release Yeshua, he couldn't risk that word's going to reach Rome that he let a traitor go. Someone who's speaking out against Rome. He just couldn't handle that you know, Tiberius Caesar could deal with that. Uh, that he wasn't a friend of Caesar. So like I said, he's between a rock and a hard place. If I do let him go, I'll probably be deposed. I might be killed myself. So what am I going to do? So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Yeshua out and sat down on the judgment seat at a plate called the stone pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, again, one more seven here. The trial of Christ before Pilate was in seven stages. And, you know, you, you, it's easy to lose this because, you know, as you're going through the text. But as you note the different scriptures, you see that uh, he keeps going inside and outside the praetorium. So he's judged outside. And then he goes inside, and then he's back outside, and then he's back inside, and then he's outside, and then he's back inside, and then he's outside. So we see he's going back, he's taking, going inside, dealing with Yeshua, coming back out, talking to the Jews, trying to work this thing out. Now the stone pavement here 
is lithothortos, which is Greek means the pavement. Uh, it's just a, a place of judgment. It's a mound or high, or Gabbatha is a mound or high place. And most people think of, he's referring here to the fortress Antonia that overlooked the temple. That's where this judgment is taking place. Now the irony of the scene again stands out here that here's this corrupt Roman official sitting in judgment on the person into whose hands God the Father had committed all judgment. John 5.22 says, I commit all judgment to the Son. So here's the judge of all the earth being judged by Pilate. But, you know, Pilate doesn't want to do this. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. So he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now, a lot of discussion here, you know, because the other Gospels seem to have some conflicts with this. But I think that, you know, what he's trying to do here by saying the day of preparation, he's saying this is the day that they're sacrificing lambs in the temple and he's trying to connect Yeshua as the Lamb of God. It's the Passover, the preparation of Passover. This is when they're sacrificing lambs. This is where we're going to offer him. He says it's about the sixth hour. Mark says it was the third hour. But you notice he says it's about the sixth hour. And again, I think he's just trying to connect here. These are symbolic. The time, the time designations may be symbolic in all the Gospels to just the time of the daily sacrifice. John introduces this time factor here as a symbolic way of saying the true Passover lamb is none other than Yeshua himself. He's sentenced to be slaughtered just as the slaughter of the lambs began. Verse 15, they cried out, away with him! Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. People, this is the bottom, okay? This is it. This is the Johannian irony at its height. The Jews who taught that God created Gentiles to provide fuel for the fires of hell are here declaring their allegiance to a Gentile king. The Jews whose ferocious antagonism forced Rome to make concessions for them over and over. They hated Gentiles. They hated that Rome ruled over them. A daily Jewish prayer requested that God send the Messiah. And here they're saying, we don't have any king but Caesar. So they're giving up on the Messianic kingdom. Another prayer later used in the Passover liturgy affirms that God alone is king. Even aside from the speaker's possible sarcasm here, many Sadducean elite priests probably were more concerned about their future with Rome than they were with Yahweh. Listen to Isaiah. For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He will save us. They knew that. That's repeated many places in this knock. But now the Jewish leaders shouted out they had no king. And listen, by inference, they have no God. But Caesar, because Caesar was claimed to be a God. All right, that's part of emperor worship. He was acknowledged as the Son of God by the Roman people. And the statement, we have no king except Caesar, is a major breach of the covenant, people. It is a violation of the Ten Commandments. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not serve them. And here they're saying, we have no king but Caesar. 
they're now repudiating Israel's messianic hope, including the messianic kingdom. They're rejecting Yahweh's sovereignty over their nation. The Jewish hierarchy had accused Yeshua of blasphemy. Now they're doing the exact same things themselves. No king, no God, but Caesar. Well, Matthew fills in some details for us. He says, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, you know, Pilate was there in Jerusalem to keep the peace. And these Jews are about to riot. And this is not good for him politically. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You know, John doesn't tell us that, but that's interesting. Matthew says he washed his hands. I, I'm, I can't do anything. You, you do it. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Man, that's prophecy there, people. Yeshua had already said that Israel's leaders would be guilty of his blood in Matthew 23, 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers. Yeshua's talking to the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders. How are you to escape being sentenced to Gehenna? All right, this is bad trans. Hell's a bad translation, all right? Gehenna is a place to become identified in people's minds as a symbol of national judgment. That's what he's talking about here. National judgment. He's referring to AD 70. He says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So Yeshua's charge is that the history of Israel is a history of murder of the men of God, including himself. He says that the righteous men from Abel to Zacharias were murdered. Now the story of Zacharias is found in 2 Chronicles 24. Zacharias rebuked the nation for their sin. And Josiah stirred up the people to stone him to death in the very temple court. And Zacharias died saying, May the Lord see and may the Lord avenge. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis is the first book, just like in ours. But the last book is Second Chronicles. So we could say that the murder of Abel is the first in the Bible, and the murder of Zacharias is the last. So he's saying from beginning to end, the history of Israel is the rejection and often slaughter of the men of God, including the very Messiah that he sent to redeem them. By rejecting Christ, by saying, we have no king but Caesar. By saying, his blood be on us. They brought upon themselves the wrath of God. They came through Rome. All right, God, it's God's wrath. You go back to Isaiah 19. He used the Assyrians all right, to judge. Here he is using the Romans. And in AD 66, the Jews revolted against Rome. In retaliation, four Roman legions ravaged Judea they burned the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple in AD 70. Many of the Jewish survivors were sold into slavery, distributing them across the Roman Empire. Matthew 23, 36 says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Again, we talked this morning about audience relevance. What do you think this generation talks about? Uh, the one he's talking to. Okay, He's talking to these people. This generation. Not that one. This one, the one right here, all right? The people who are listening to him, that generation is going to be punished. 
It's all going to happen. All the punishment is going to come in their generation. Matthew 23.37 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. By house, he's referring to Jerusalem, and certainly the temple was included. The word desolate here is the Greek word erimos, and it means waste, desolate, solitary wilderness. The city and the temple were both destroyed in AD 70. The crowd cried out, His blood be on us and our children. And it was. Judgment fell on that very generation because they rejected God. We have no king but Caesar. Verse 16 says, And He delivered them over to them to be crucified. Now if He was going to be whipped another time with the more severe one, this is when that would take place. It's very important to understand though at this point that the story of Pilate, you know, all through this thing, we... We've talked about Pilate's on very thin ice politically. All right, He was a representative of a Roman government, but he had numerous clashes with the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they had reported him on many occasions. And he's just worried about losing his post. So he's in a very delicate position politically. By now, Pilate has given up any idea of justice. He knows he wanted it, but he knows it's not going to happen. His only desire was to pacify the crowd that had suddenly become so fired up, and if it meant taking the life of an innocent man, it's out of my hands, he says. I washed my hands. You guys do it. I can't do any more. So here stands a bloody, beaten Christ about to be crucified on a Roman cross. He's been declared innocent, but the Jews are crying out for his crucifixion. What I want you to understand is he stands there you know, with the form not resembling a human. He's not a helpless victim being brutalized by the will of the people. You know, we can talk about Pilate, we can talk about the religious leaders and the multitude joining in the most criminal act in history, but behind it all is the providence of God. God's providence is not His wish for things, but His wise, righteous governance of the affairs of men in order to bring about His eternal purposes. The early church understood this as we see in their prayer. All right, this is the early church. These are men praying. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. What happened to Christ? as cruel, as mean, as wicked as it was, was exactly what God had planned and predestined to take place. Now, why would God plan the brutal death of His Son? Because He loved us. He loved us. And He couldn't have us because we were guilty. Penalty had to be paid. And so, He paid it through His Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity again to look at this text of Scripture. Lord, there's just so much in there. So much more could be drawn out, Father. It it is amazing how dense the Scripture can be, Lord. How how much You have packed into them. I pray, Father, that You would give us all the heart of Bereans. That we would dig. That we would desire to 
unearth all we can. Lord, not for knowledge's sake, but so that we would know You. That we would know You and then make You known, Father. Lord, thank You for allowing us to look at this text today. Amen. All right, any questions or comments on what we covered today? Dan? Uh, question. Going back to the verse where it said, His blood be on us and our children. Do you think that ended in AD 70 or is that continuing? Well, yeah, I, I think the, you know, the question was, did you know, their blood, his blood be on us? That, their blood, that, those very people's blood was spilled in AD 70. And here's the thing that's so significant about AD 70. We say, well, the city got destroyed. No, the covenant ended. The covenant with Israel was done. All right? I don't care what the dispensational say, God is finished with Israel because Christ was the new Israel. All right, the seed of Abraham to whom the promises come was Christ. And when we trust Christ, we're now the seed of Abraham. So this was a major significant event, AD 70. Judaism shut down, the temple shut down. God's done with the old covenant. The old covenant is over, it's finished. You don't have to worry about what you eat. You have to worry about the clothes you're wearing. Am I wearing the right kind of cloth? All this. You don't have to, that's over. Now it's all about Christ. Do you trust Christ? And if you trust Him, you're a believer. It is a major, significant event. Nothing could be more major. Now see, what happened then, the Jews were done. But so they said, well, we want to keep going. They totally reinvented Judaism. What they do now doesn't even resemble the Judaism of the Bible. They claim they're connected to the Scriptures. They go through you know, the Seder and these different feasts and stuff, but they don't resemble... Because one thing that was so prominent in Judaism was sacrifice. The Jews aren't doing that anymore. And it's not just because of PETA, okay? <laughs> They're just not doing it. They're not sacrificing these animals. And that is a major... You know, every, every day in the temple, morning and evening, an animal is sacrificed. Every day at Passover, hundreds, thousands of lambs were sacrificed. So many lambs that the blood ran out of the temple down in the brook Kedron and turned it red. That's right. It's, you know, that was all about that. But see, it was over because all that pointed to Christ. Christ came. He's the fulfillment of all of it. So why do you keep going back to shadow when you have the reality? You don't. But people are hanging on to that. And they want to go backwards. Guess what? In the millennium, we'll get the sacrifice again. Who wants to do that? Yeah. Who wants to go back to killing animals? Christ has come. I mean, it's a spit in His face. You, thanks for what you did, but we're going to go back to sacrificing animals. Hope that will help out. No, you don't need that. You don't need the bloods of bulls and goats anymore. Okay? Because it never did take away sin. It just pointed to Christ. He's here. It's done. All right? Yes, Dan. So then basically the Holocaust is Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of questions there. Were the Jews being punished at Holocaust? Well, you know, I don't think the people who were punished at Holocaust were actually biblical Jews. See, the Jews, when they were taken, when, when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, they scattered the Jews all over. They were intermarried. There's, you know, 
I mean, anthropologists today say there is no Jewish race. There isn't one. Now, of course, dispensationalists and Jews are going to try to agree, you know, disagree with you, but that's anthropologists. Look in the Jewish encyclopedia. There, it, it tells you right in there. There's no Jewish race. It's done. It was wiped out. Intermingled. You, you know, there's nothing there. So, you know, the things that, you know, a lot of people will use that. See, the Jews had to go through all this stuff. So, 8070 was God saying, I'm done with you. You're done. The only way you'll be in any relationship with me is through Christ. And that's why one of the biggest blasphemers of our day is not Joel Osteen, it's John Hagee. Because Hagee says the Jews don't need Christ. He preaches two Gospels, one for the Jews, one for other people, which is such a denial of the whole New Testament. And yet he's got a huge following. It's sick. It really is sick. 